You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Kim Stanley Robinson. His new book is Galileo's Dream. Thank you for joining me, Stan. Oh, Rick, pleasure as always. You know, when I was listening to the story you were reading tonight, which is uh, about two stories uh, interlinked about uh, varying possibilities around Hiroshima and, and your thoughts about history, all I could think about was the Foundation trilogy and psychohistory. It seems like uh, we, we're still developing this kind of concept of history as a science. Yes, well, and we always will be because uh, as I try to stay in these stories and also in Galileo's dream, you can't have a, a science of history. The the amount of chaotic behavior and the contingency involved uh, means that is uh, not only unpredictable, which we always know, but it can't even be explained in retrospect adequately so that you can't say why things happened. You can point to factors, but you can't say that's the truly determining factor. So, I mean, I have been thinking about this ever since the Lucky Strike. I'm, I read the story tonight, but I wrote it in 1983. So it's been a long time between the writing of it and the reading aloud of it. Um, and uh, I've worked on history a lot through the years, the uh, ideas of history, uh, philosophies and concepts of it. In the years of Rice and Salt, I had to think about, well, why did Europe dominate? And if Europe wasn't there, what would happen? And so it's been a kind of constant uh, issue. One of the things that, that interests me uh, about your work and about this, this book in particular um, and the forthcoming Galileo's Dream mm-hmm. is the way that you use the, these concepts to create really in compelling stories and, and really fascinating characters. So talk about turning these characters, using alternate histories to create uh, stories and characters. Well, uh, particularly in The Lucky Strike, uh, I was interested and in, in, uh, actually moved to read the description of him in Sensitive Dependence on Initial Conditions because what I realized was that once you get an idea for a story, like say the bombardier uh, on the way to Hiroshima is not um, the guy who was really in the plane but a replacement who has an imagination and decides on the way that he doesn't want to do it, what does he do? Well, that's an interesting notion, and I had it probably 10 years before writing this story. But the problem was that the more likely you made it a bombardier that that would um, have qualms and, and change his actions and disobey orders, the less likely he would be in the position to do so. Because, and everybody in World War II was, uh, I mean, everybody who was in the military in World War II was on the same page. They um, were in a mindset where a dissident in an important position was almost an impossibility. So I had to construct that story as being a story about a guy that was both uh, imaginative and secretive, who would consider doing something different, but had not been found out by the authorities beforehand and changed his mind at the last minute. So the whole short story is constructed almost as a little machine to create a certain kind of character. And so Frank January is a study in characterization. And January, in fact, is the the two-faced god, uh, so that even the name uh, was chosen to show that this was a secretive and a guy who wore a mask all the time. And there's lots of mask imagery and lots of fox in a hole imagery in the story to try to support so that while the reader's reading it, they can believe 
in this alternative bombardier. So uh, I find this happens a lot when you start writing alternative histories, that once you get your main idea, it will, there will be something in it that is against the grain of what really happened, and then you have to explain that, and then you're forced to make up characters who would do the other thing. And uh, so that helped me a lot also in the construction of Galileo's dream. Well, well tell us about Galileo's dream, which is a really uh, a fascinating novel. You, you've been working on this for a long time, haven't you? Well, I guess it was about three years, and it was a, it was a wild project for me. I've never done time travel, and I've never done aliens in my whole life. And they both come up in this book. And so it was a wild book. And at first I was scared. In fact, most of the time through the writing of the book I was scared. But at a certain point I thought, well, but wait, I'm a science fiction writer and this is what science fiction does. And it's okay. It can be uh, crazy. And so once I allowed myself to be crazy, I began to have a lot of fun. And particularly because Galileo himself was such an attractive character. There I didn't have to make up anything about him. He was a beautiful guy, a wild man and um, supremely intelligent and a super hard worker and also filled with a lot of uh, renaissance um, over-the-top flaws. So he was a great gift to the novelist, but by putting him into a time travel story, I, I was basically trusting myself to be able to channel him and trusting him. I, once you ha learn about Galileo, you can have confidence that you could snatch him out of his context and you could put him in the year 3000 and he would be capable of handling it and, and he would not be intimidated. He was not a guy that was going to be easily intimidated by any other human being because he thought he was the smartest person on the planet. And he, at that point, he might have been right. So um, I began to have a blast with him out in the far thousands of years from now, dealing on the moons of Jupiter, dealing with a very complicated situation there, particularly when one of the Jovian people from the future takes him back to show him his own life and shows him being burnt at the stake. And at that point, he begins to think he's got to run his life a little differently than perhaps he might have because he has foreknowledge of a bad fate. And so the whole rest of the novel is him struggling to learn more in the future and in, the, and in his own time to avoid this bad fate. And, and you know, uh, Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake while Galileo was a working professor in Padua. It happened when he was about 30 or 35 years old that uh, Bruno was burned at the stake by the Pope for heresy, for saying crazy things about the stars. And so Galileo, when he began to say crazy things about the stars, the danger was obvious. Everybody in that whole culture was under no illusions that bad, bad things could happen, that the ultimate authority might be able to order the police to burn you at the stake. So at that point I had my plot driver, and uh, even knowing uh, how the ending comes out, at least in our temporality, there were many temporalities, it turns out. Um, nevertheless, it's a, you can create a tremendous tension there by him trying to avoid his bad fate. Galileo is often portrayed as being kind of a victim, but he was pretty hard-headed about what he wanted to do. As you say, he knew what was going to happen to him if he kept opening his mouth up. That the danger was there, and he, but the thing is that he thought he had a political accommodation. He thought he had permission. He felt that, ba that he had been double-crossed by the actual trial. Um, because when he wrote the book that got him in trouble, the Dialogo, there was uh, assurances from the church and even personal assurances from the Pope that it was okay. So when he got hauled in a year after the book came out, uh, this was a surprise to him and he was furious because he felt like a deal had been broken. 
one of the things you're noted for in your books is you have a really great and, and subtle but very funny sense of humor. Mm. And so tell us about uh, turning some of these wild and tragic events. Do, do we get uh, some of that humor in this novel? Well, I hope so. Um, there is a... Uh, all of Galileo's servants notice his very close resemblance to uh, Punchinello, the Punch and Judy, the original, the Punch and Judy figure, which was based on servants' ideas of what a really bad master was like. Uh, loud, obnoxious, uh, hypocritical, crude, etc. Well, Galileo was all those things in his home life, and um, uh, even in his writing is funny. He is a witty and sharp, uh, his humor tends towards heavy sarcasm, but it can also be lightning wit. And so um, just by following Galileo, I think I, I ended up with a comic novel in a lot of respects. You were just in Venice recently with uh, celebrating the 400th anniversary of the invention of the telescope. Yes, the, the Venetians and the North Italians generally celebrating Galileo's 400th anniversary of his development of the telescope. And even he claimed from the very start, I didn't invent it, I just improved it. If anybody thinks they can improve it further, then they can show me, but I did it better than anyone else, blah, blah. But they're willing to celebrate that. And so there was a big festival in Venice. It was kind of a beautiful thing. The events were rather small, but the festival was large and spread out over a couple of months uh, and all over the north of Italy. So I was a very small part of that, but it did get me into Venice. I saw the Galileo sites. I really took my own Galileo tour of Venice, and it, um, it was a beautiful visit. You do a, a really wonderful job of incorporating real history and real science into your work by giving it a, an imaginative twist. Could you talk about um, cleaving to history and changing history at the same time? Well, that's a good question, because I did not want to change anything in what really happened to Galileo. It wouldn't be a service to the reader or to Galileo. What really happened to him was so incredibly dramatic that there was simply, uh, it would have been bad to change it. And so there is a story going on in that novel that is simply his biography. But underneath it and behind it is this fantasia, this secret history, this backstory that supposedly explains why it turned out the way it did. And there are some severe mysteries in terms of his trial. There were conflicting forces at work. People wanted him off. People wanted him burned at the stake. They were fighting over a vote. It was not the Pope's decision. It was his council's decision that had been set up as a kind of a jury trial of nine cardinals. So you can see in the record, which the Vatican kept really good records of this whole event, and a nun was taking down a dictation at, at rapid speed like a stenographer. So we have almost a tape recording of the trial and of his uh, examinations, and amazing documents. And so I quoted liberally from those because the real story is already so fascinating that you wouldn't want to mess with it. But I also think that you can have a little bit of a pleasure knowing that, okay, that is what really happened, but there were so many weird things, and now we know what the secret explanation is, and there's a kind of a, a, a game-playing aspect to that part of doing alternative history or doing time travel. Time travel, ultimately, you have to enjoy the game aspect of it or else you'll go crazy because it never does add up to make sense. That's one of the great pleasures of, of time travel is is creating the rules and then messing with the rules. 
Yes, and, and you can never hope for consistency because once you begin replicating time, uh, you have to be develop alternative explanations of what's going on in the universe. Immediately, very quickly, you get to parallel worlds. And the cool thing is that science fiction in its tradition in the 1940s and 1950s, when they had all the Time War novels of Poole Anderson, Isaac Asimov, uh, Fritz Leiber. It was a it was a huge going uh, subgenre in the 1950s, where people would f and what I think this was was people talking about how we fight over history, not only while it's happening and trying to set the future, but also over what happened in the past and what it meant. Well, we historians fight over that all the time. So, time travel has huge value as a metaphor and and also as a game where you can have a lot of fun. And ultimately, you have to throw up your hands and say, oh, there's a paradox here, isn't there? Well, yes, there is a paradox here. So, And you have to live with that. And once I learned to live with that and not try to plot my way out of it, then I got a whole lot happier. All history is alternate history, then. Well, that's essentially, that's the world in Galileo's dream. Yes, indeed. You, you understand history to be multiple and sort of like um, what in quantum mechanics. And, of course, here we go into, as an English major, I'm just using all these terms metaphorically. But the Richard Feynman talks about a sum over histories and how there's a potential state that we can describe by the size of the wave and where the wave starts in its cycle. So you've got a couple of mathematical functions, but until you actually make a decision or something happens, all these potentialities are coexisting at once. Well, what if those are all different time streams or different parallel worlds? And then we do things, or time passes through it like a wave, and then it, it, it collapses down. The, the wave function collapses and you have an incident. So at that point, you can begin to make up. I mean, quantum mechanics is already so strange and fuzzy at the boundaries and so much like a time travel novel at the micro scale that you can quickly make it your uh, armature of explanation. And nobody uh, except for five or six people on the planet can challenge you because nobody but five or six people on the planet have a deep understanding of what quantum mechanics really means. Well, of course, that just what it really means is that the entirety of human history has led up to the point where I'm thanking Stan Robinson for a wonderful interview. And, and how Thank likely you. is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks very much, Rick. It's always a pleasure, and um, uh, I hope I look forward to coming down to Santa Cruz and doing more. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>